Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series called Resilient Faith, we'll explore what it means to have a resilient faith in the middle of a digital age. Each week, we'll explore what it means to have faith in a world with strange new customs, habits, and gods. So let's turn now to part five of our series, Faith That Calls. Would you pray with me this morning? Gracious God, thank you for receiving our songs of praise into your ears. Now, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you knew, by raising your hands, that we have no idea how freshwater eels reproduce? Anybody know this? You know, you know, you got, we got a few over here. You guys seen the TED Talk? It's TikTok. Did you see TikTok? No? You know, <laughs> this is fascinating. We have put someone on the moon, and we have no idea where freshwater eels come from. In this, I mean, I'm not talking about evolution. Like that's, it's not, you know, like evolution, like where they come, that's not idea. We literally do not know how they reproduce. We've never seen it. You can put a couple of eels, as one person said, into a tank, turn on some Marvin Gaye. You're never going to figure out how an eel reproduces. Like you just don't know it. You, you've got no clue whatsoever. They've followed these eels all the way back. Like Aristotle, he talks about this in one of his writings. He thinks maybe they just like manufacture out of the mud in the middle of the stream. He has no idea, right? The only thing we know, and this is where the story gets really even kind of creepier, it has something to do with the Bermuda Triangle. Right? That's just perfect, isn't it? You think I'm making that up. I'm not making that up. Go watch, go watch it. Google this later today. Where do eels come from? Bermuda Triangle. I'm sure you will find the TED Talk. The lady's much more brilliant than I am. I actually didn't discover this on, on a TED Talk, even though there is one out there. I discovered this because I spent too much time on this thing right here. This thing right here. I was watching, and this guy named Cole the Science Dude, who now has nearly a million followers, comes on, and he decides to tell us all that we don't know where eels come from, and I ended up spending the next 30 or 45 minutes trying to figure out if this dude was telling the truth or not. I'm like all over the place trying to explore this, and you know, the truth is, like we've talked a lot about with my screen, I probably spent a little too much time on my screen that day. We all do, but in the midst of it, I formed a new relationship with Cole the Science Dude, so that was nice. I learned something that I had no idea. Now you have this incredible knowledge that eels from around the world somehow make their way into the Bermuda Triangle, go in, and old eels die, and new ones emerge. Got no idea how that happens, but it is. We've got all this knowledge in our heads now, and you know the truth was is I was able to listen to a bunch of different people about it, and that's kind of what we've been talking about with our screens. There's a sense in which, even though we spend inordinate amounts of time on our screens now, we're always looking into our screens, they can open up a brand new world for us. They can introduce us to new people, and they enable us to start listening to all sorts of people. But an interesting thing happened to me when I listened to Cole is he started unpacking something else for me that goes on in my heads whenever I deal with the screen. And that is this central question right here. What do I need to do with my life? <laughs> if Cole the science dude can get a million followers because he talks about the reproductive habits of eels or the lack thereof, what am I doing wrong? Right? And this is a question that kind of goes in front of everybody all the time, is what am I doing with my life? What do I need to do with my life? And, and of course... The screen world 
only pushes that question further. You know, in a very, very superficial way, we might ask that question that I asked a minute ago, what am I doing wrong with my life, where this dude gets, you know, a million people viewing this video. That's just a million followers, by the way. He's had like some 15 million views on that video um, to date. So who knows how, how much that'll grow. But, but it asks that question, but then it, you can dig a little bit deeper with something like this. You know, ask the question, the superficial question, what do I need to do to go viral? But, but deeper than that was just this question, what do I need to do in life? Right, it's going to cause us to, to think that way. Maybe we're not engaging with our screens, but it's going to elicit that sort of question in our mind. What do I need to do with my life? What do I need to say in life? What, what strange and unusual bit of information or angle that I have been given in the world do I need to present to the world? And this doesn't change just because we age, right? We can move from, from our school age to our career age to our retirement. But in each of these ages of life, we're often asking this question, what do I need to do? And, and it's what makes transitional moments so difficult, right? I'm 40 years old now, so I'm right at that midlife crisis mode in my life. And I'm constantly reevaluating that question. Some of you moved into retirement or about to move into retirement. You're asking that question. What do I do with my life now that I'm in this zone? You've got students here who who graduating soon, and you're asking that question. What am I going to do with my life? Every transitional moment we go through in life creates that opportunity to ask that question. But the screens that are in front of us force us into asking that question over and over and over again. But if we look at the most resilient among us, If we look at the disciples that we've been looking at over the past few weeks who've learned how to navigate this new digital world, what we discover is that the question of what is a necessary question. And I'm not going to ask you to get rid of that question in your life. You're going to have to engage with that question forever. But resilient disciples have discovered that it is necessary, but it's not primary. It's not the first importance in your life. It's not the thing that we put out first. As we look at the life of resilient disciples who are surviving and who are thriving in this world, who are living in this world, we discover that the primary question, the first question that they ask is not what, but why. It's why am I here? Why am I living in the space that I am? Why am I gifted in these ways? Why do I find myself drawn to this or to that? Why am I moving in this particular way? You see, resilient disciples see what they do at all times through the lens of why they do it. There's no doubt that they're going to wrestle with what, as every human being has always wrestled with what, but they will see the what in their life through the lens of the why of their life. And that why of our life can become an anchor point that will help us navigate whatever waters we're living in, whatever transition points we're going through from birth to death. The why keeps us moving forward and helps us navigate a variety of what's that come up. And this means that to become a disciple who is concerned in our lives with not just coming to church, but living a resilient life in every single age, you and I have to be concerned about the why so that we can dig into what I'm going to call and what, what the, the Barna group calls vocational discipleship. It's a term that they coined together, but vocational discipleship is this understanding that all of us are called into something in life. All of us carry a call over our life, and I would describe that purely as our why. This is our why. And we live into our why, and our why, uh, our why will inform every other decision that we make in life, but it ultimately is our calling. It's our vocation in life. And that's why they have 
listed the fourth practice of resilient disciples as resilient disciples are those who have trained for vocational discipleship. They lived into their why. They have purpose. I have purpose. You have purpose. We all have purpose in our lives no matter where we are. God's created us with that purpose. And if we have that purpose, then what we should do as people of faith is figure out what that purpose is, or another way of saying it, why we are here why we are existing in this world. And then once we figure out that why, the resilient disciples take one step further. They figure out how they can align their why with their what. They want to put those two together. They don't want to keep those separate. I exist in this world, and so what I'm going to do in this world is going to line up with why I am existing in the world. And I'm going to do the hard work as a person of faith to dig in and to figure that out. And, you know, if, if we take a look back again at the story from the great exile, I've talked about this each, and, uh, each week to some degree. If we take back and, and look at this story where all of the people of Jerusalem and greater Israel, all the, the leaders and the rulers of that place were taken and stripped away and go to Babylon, then we find at work in this story another individual who wrestled with the question of why and what. And today I want us to turn in our Bibles, either if you're here or at home, turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. This is an Old Testament book, and we're going to look at Nehemiah's story for just a minute. Now, Nehemiah was a figure who, was later in, who, who lived later in the exile. He probably was actually born in exile, so he had never been to Jerusalem. He, had, he only had heard stories of this great faithful place, of this place that was theirs and belonged to them. But Nehemiah was born and raised in, per, in the Persian Empire. Right? So at this point in time, Babylon was the empire that took the Israelites away. After Babylon came and stripped them away, the Persians came in, took over, and, and Nehemiah is living in that world. This brand new empire, the Persian Empire, where they're living in that environment. And he's serving, as we come to find out, his what in life is to serve at the behest of King Artaxerxes. Right, this is where he is. He's serving this king. He's right next to him. And in the middle of this environment, he starts to discover his why. The story is told to us, and I won't read this part of it, but at the very beginning, the story is told that someone travels from Jerusalem over to Persia, or, or, or where he's living in this space, and they meet him and tell him of the stories of, of the city, the ancient city of Jerusalem. How terrible it is, how the walls are broken down, how the people are, are, are scattered in that space and they're unsafe and they're living these miserable lives. And interestingly enough, as they're telling him about this, this why starts to rise up inside of him and he starts to align his why and his, and his what and he immediately says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build the walls. Now this is the what. What am I going to do? I'm going to build the walls. What am I going to do? I'm going to travel back to Jerusalem. I'm going to take whatever I can with me, whatever resources, and what I'm going to do is build the walls. But what we often mistake, and we do this in our own lives, what we often mistake in him moving back to do this is that his what in that moment was the essence of his call, right? But this is just his what. This is just what he's doing. He could do multiple things out there, but what, what is just undergirding or undergirded by his why? And Nehemiah starts to recognize what that why is. And, and let me just sort of spell this out because we'll see how he spells out his what in chapter 2 before we get to his why. Listen to what he does when he gets into Jerusalem and receives all this, uh, this pressure from the king and others around him. In verse 11 of chapter 2, So I, this is Nehemiah in the first person, I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I got up in the middle of the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what... 
right? There it is. I told no one what my God had put into my heart for Jerusalem. Now, in this early stage, he does know why and he does know what. But what's interesting about Nehemiah in this moment is he does not share his why or his what with the people around him. He pauses and he listens. He pauses and he observes. Instead, he looks around, he observes the world around him, he walks around looking at everything that's out there before he ever opens his mouth to say what he's there for or why he is there. In fact, just listen to the next three verses as he spells this out. The only animal I took was the animal I rode in. I went out by the night in the valley gate, past the dragon springs and to the dung gate. Both of those sound really interesting places to me. I don't know why I'm just like dragon spring and dung gate. Wouldn't it be cool if I could be like, hey, if you'll just go down the road past Washburn's and you'll hit dung gate right down the road. (laughs) Nobody's going there, but this is where he went, right? Dragon springs and dung gate. And I inspected as he's walking around, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. He goes on. Then I kept moving. I left Dung Gate because it smelled really bad. I went to the Fountain Gate and to the King's Pool. It was fantastic at that point, right? But there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So at that point, I just went up by the way of the valley by night and inspected the walls. And then I turned back and entered the Valley Gate and so returned. This man just walks around all night long, right? He's a stranger to the land. He's, he's from this land of Persia. Nobody knows him around there. He gets into this space and he just starts moving around the place and After he moves around the entire city, look what he does. He comes back in in verse 16, and here's what he says. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest that that, that we were there to do the work. And in our periods of vocational discernment, in your life, what I'm going to encourage you to do as you hit moments of transition, wherever that is in your life, Always take moments to pause and listen, to reflect, to reflect on what God has certainly done in your past, but to reflect on what God is doing around you in the world. Because the why and the what, the why that's placed in our hearts, the what that is in our hands, is always going to align with the world as it actually is. You see, Nehemiah had this moment where he had heard from someone what the walls of Jerusalem were like, what the state of the city was like. He had received all of that information, but he took the time to actually pause once he arrived in the city, once he arrived at that space, to look around and examine what was going on. And the same is true for you and I. When we hit these moments of calling in our lives or transition in our lives where we're looking for a new what or we're trying to identify what the what is, it's important for us to take that pause and to have that moment of quiet discernment to experience the weight of our why in that moment and then imagine what our what could be in that new space. Not a what that we just want to put in that space, but once we're standing in that space, what's it going to look like? How can it engage with the people who are actually here, who are actually living in this? And as we operate through these periods of silent discernment, we can actually have clarity brought to our what and our why in life. But we need these periods of silent discernment first. And of course, in Nehemiah's life, it was after this period of silent discernment that we start to find great uh, clarity around the what and the why in his life. In fact, if we go on to verse 17, this is what he begins to speak of. It says, then I said to them, it's the first time that he's speaking out loud, uh, but prior to this, he's just speaking to us, but now he's going to speak out loud. You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. He's spelling out the problem as he sees it. Come, Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. There's the what. 
Here's what I want to do in this space. I want to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It's the first time he's told anybody out loud in that space what he wants to do. But listen to how he follows it up. So that. Now this is a key phrase in the turning of the story that points us towards the why. Here's why I want to do this. I'm going to rebuild the walls so that. Why I'm going to do this so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. You see, this is what actually settled into his heart at first. From the foundation, we understand that Jeremiah was, or Nehemiah rather, was in a place where his heart was broken for the broken hearts of the people. He recognized that they were in disgrace. And what it says in chapter 1 is that when he heard these stories, his heart broke within him for those people for the disgrace that they were living in. It wasn't that they just didn't have walls. He, you know, that's not his why. His why in the world is that he wanted to change the hearts of these people so that their hearts would not be broken. And so in verse 18, he continues to spell this out. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me, and also that the words that the king had spoken to me. And then they said to me, well, let's start building. All right, let's start doing this. Let's start jumping on board. He convinces them with his what and his why. And immediately he has people who follow up. And it says they, they committed themselves to the common good. You see, when Nehemiah discovered his why in life and the world, he found God's grace and presence in his life. And then an immediate, immediately after that, he found a community of people who wanted to follow up and go with him in that, in that journey. He has this group of people who come around him and they circle around that vision in that moment. He had developed his call. He developed his purpose. He developed his why in the world. And he found in developing that why, and I, I pray the same thing for each one of us, as we develop our why in the world, that we'll discover that we're not alone in that burden. That we're not the only one who bears that burden, but there are others who bear it. As we de define clarity around the why and get clarity around the what and we start to express that to a world that we're living in, we'll discover that others are feeling the same way, are living into the same thing. And here's why for Nehemiah and here's how it can be for us. It was, it was this way for Nehemiah because his passion around this area became contagious to others. Right, and this is how we can start to see our, our whys spread to other people. We can develop a passion for our why that's contagious to others around us. If you want to discover the place and the purpose in your life, you have to start with that passion. You have to start with this simple question. I've asked you this question before, and I think it's one that I ask myself so often. What's the thing in the world that breaks your heart? Right? This is the key place where you can get to Nehemiah's passion area. What broke his heart? It was the disgrace of the people. It was the people who were suffering in his homeland, a, a land that you know, we thought might return back to God, but it's still in disgrace decades and decades later after its ruin. This breaks his heart. And the question for us as we think about what we're designed to do in the world and be in the world is, well, what breaks your heart? Where do you feel your heart growing and becoming passionate about things? In Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4, he receives that word that the devastation had come, his heart is broken, his passion starts to swell. And what's interesting about this, and I don't want us to forget this, passion in our lives is that interesting thing that swings between exuberance and pain. Passion is, in fact, we use this phrase often with Christ, the passions of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. When you think of passion in the world, passion can sometimes be extremely painful as a burden to bear, and it can also be exciting for us to live into. And Nehemiah, of course, felt both of those. He felt that pain as he listened to the stories of those who were back in, the, in ancient Israel. 
And he also felt the excitement of what God might be calling him to. And as his passion started growing, even in this ancient place, others started seeing the passion on him and living into it. In a moment where he was not all exuberant, he was actually kind of downcast, King Artaxerxes in chapter 2 recognizes his passion because his face has changed. And in that moment, Artaxerxes turns to him and says, hey, what, what's going on? What, what can I do? And, and he starts to explain to Artaxerxes what's burning, breaking his heart, the burden that he bears. And as soon as he shares it with it, Artaxerxes is like, I can get behind that. I'll write you letters. I'll write letters that you can take with you to the kingdom. Let's start building together, the people say, right after he shares his vision there. You see, as soon as Nehemiah shares that passion, as you, as you start to share your passion with the world, you'll start to see others sort of coming around you. So what breaks your heart? So yes, passion can be contagious. Others will see it, be amazed. But not everybody's going to understand it. Not everybody's going to sort of line up with it right away. Your family, your friends, your co-workers, others who are in your life. And of course, Nehemiah experiences this firsthand because as soon as the people gathered around him in chapter uh, 2, verse 18, and said, let's start building, there was another group of people right there who as soon as he said that, they started coming against him. And so his passion had to be uh, coupled up with his courage. And we see this start to come out in the, far, the, the next two verses. He's got this second anchor point of courage in his life. And Nehemiah, even though he was well-loved by some, he was not loved by all. And he had that sort of op- opposition rising up in verse 19. Look at it with me, if you will. Verse 19 says, But when Sanballat the Hornite the, and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, What is it that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king himself? And here's the moment of courage. This is where he has to speak back. Then I replied to him, The God of heaven is the one who will give us success, and we his servants are going to start building. But you, you have no share or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. Look at the courage that this took. This is a bold statement. Nehemiah is the foreigner, mind you. He's the one who's come in in this land, and he is the one who's settling in, saying this is what needs to be done. And it's those who have lived there who are like, No, who are you? Who do you think you are? He's like, no, you have no claim. God's the one who wants to build this up. And so Nehemiah, with this passion in his heart, couples it with courage. And in this moment, he affirms his why in the world. And it's not like this slowed down anytime soon, right? The courage just, he had to continue to do this over and over again. Even by the time we get to chapter 6, we still see these three individuals coming back to him. Chapter 6, verse 2 says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let's meet together. We'll chat about this, right? They're still not happy. Let's meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and he knew it. And so Nehemiah responds, So I sent messengers to them saying, I I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. I cannot come down from the post that I'm in. Why should the work that's being done here stop while I leave to come over to talk to you? The work that's being done is good. It's great. And Nehemiah says, I have to live into this. And so they sent to me four times, and each time he responds in the same way. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. You see, Nehemiah had found that why that locked into him so deeply and built into a courage that no matter what happened time and time again, he was able to respond courageously and to do exactly what God wanted him to do because it was lined up with his why and his purpose in life. And this is amazing because he took his passion, he combined it with courage, and he lived faithfully with, uh, with the people of God in this foreign land. 
But there's one final ingredient that's important, and I don't want us to forget it as we're exploring what God has called us into and why God has called us into it. Yes, he had passion. He knew what broke his heart in that moment. Yes, he had courage. He could speak boldly against any of the faithless who were around him. But Nehemiah also had partnerships. Don't forget this. From the very beginning, he had partnerships. He had community from the very beginning where his face was downcast in Persia. He had partnerships with the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. He had partnerships with those who would gather around him, craftsmen, priests, laborers, all who would stand on the wall with him and build it and erect it. And this is where God calls us to one another. We are not just individuals, disciples. We are the community of faith. We are people who come together and we support one another in the what? and the whys of our lives. And we find that as God is calling each of us as individuals, God's inviting us as a community to circle around each other, to explore deeply one another's lives and to say, if God is calling you to do this, I want to be right there to support you. I want to be right there alongside of us. And this is is sometimes, you know, in a secular world, let me just make this as practical as I can. This is the place where mentoring comes in. Right, we've got, there's mentor-mentee relationships. Some of you are mentors to students in schools. And, and what I see is a deeply spiritual principle at work in Scripture and in our church that, that can be seen even in that space of mentoring and, mentee and mentees. It's this idea that I'm going to come along beside of you and pour into you. And, and mentors do interesting things when it comes to exploring call and exploring purpose and exploring the why. A lot of times the role of the mentor is to offer some reflection, right? So you reflect on what, on your past, on your past view of the world. Perhaps you have a a much better view of the past than the person that you're dealing with. Sometimes you focus on selection, like what are the choices that are actually there that you should be selecting and playing around with? Should you use these nails instead of these nails to build your wall? Should you use this or this material? You know, like there's selection decisions that need to be made. And then sometimes there's this sort of projection, where we sit back as, as a community of faith and we're able to say, well, have you thought about what, if you make this decision, what it might mean later? And all three of these are important functions that the community works out together. The community helps us offer reflection. The community helps us offer selection. The community helps us project what's going to happen in the future. And yes, we can do some of those things on our own. But what you discover in life is that if you narrow your perspective to just myself, right, my view of history is that much narrower. My view of the options is that much narrower. My understanding of what choices might be out there is that much narrower. And so God invites us, yes, into a place of passion and courage, but God also invites us into a place of community where you and I can figure out together how we can live into the why that God has designed us to. And if we're going to be resilient disciples in the world, if you're going to be a disciple who has that faith that rises above all the rest, that it doesn't matter how the sands of time change, if you're going to be the one whose faith stays solid, then you have to wrestle with that question, what breaks my heart? Because I truly believe that God has created all of us, all of us for purpose in this world and invited all of us to take that unique identity, blend it into the community of faith and offer it back for the kingdom. And this is one of the best ways that we can start to navigate a faith that lives every day. Not just one day, but every day, in every space, in everything that we do. And it's God who invites you into that space of discovery. In the same way that God entered our space. 
This is one of the beautiful things about the table of the Lord is that it reminds us that we have a God who has entered into our space to show us His grand purpose in the world. And if we look at this table right here, we discover the great why of God. What's the thing that breaks His heart? It's us. In a literal way, the bread is broken before us. It shows us that we are the ones who break His heart. It shows us the great lengths that He will go, the what that lied before Him. Or He would enter our world, He would become part of us. And we get to see, up, up close and personal, at this table, His passion. His passion for you and I. And the way in which He not only wants us to view it, but to become participators in it. We can share His passion. Yes, by taking it in, but share it. Allow His passion to become our passion. To take it on and to live faithfully into it wherever we go. And so that's what I invite you to this morning. I'm going to come around in just a few minutes after we consecrate the elements and I'm going to bring you a piece of the broken body. And as you take that body today, I want you to reflect deeply on what breaks your heart. Remembering what has already broken His. What breaks yours? And in this season of life that you're living in or season of life that you're looking towards going into, where is God calling you now? And how can you join together your what and your why once more? Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for this moment that we get to share today. A moment where we share your love for all of humanity and for all of creation. Gracious God, we thank you for on a weekend where we actually get to rest from our labors. We remember from scripture that our labor is not in vain. But that we have the opportunity to utilize our labor in every season of life. For the glory of God and the coming of your kingdom. And so, God, we ask that you will use the work of our hands. But even more today, God, as we gather around this table, I ask that you will remind us all of what breaks your heart and help us to answer that question internally, what breaks our heart. Give us that clarity as we come to you this day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.